0: of Luke sets forth to present a savior who is doing just that. One who is there to help those who are suffering and hurting and bring salvation. And there's no better depiction of that in the gospel of Luke than I believe in Luke chapter 7. So if you would please turn there, Luke chapter 7. In Luke seven, one through 17, we find two miracles. The first is the healing of a Gentile soldier's slave, a centurion, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then a widow whose son has just passed. And what Luke is setting forth is he's laying out this gospel. We've talked about this. He's, He's setting forth to show us this Jesus truly is the savior of the world. He alone can bring salvation. He alone can heal this broken world. He alone can restore the sin that has tainted this globe. And so we're going to see that this type of salvation calls for a response. It calls for a praise of God, a belief in Jesus, and it also lays out what discipleship truly means. So Luke chapter seven, we're gonna read the first miracle look at that, and then we'll go to the second. So let's look at this. Luke 7, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished teaching all this to the people, he entered Capernaum. Remember, this is Jesus' hometown. He spends a lot of time here. And a centurion there had a slave who was highly regarded. You go, what is a centurion? The Roman forces were divvied up. The first was a a legion. That was 6,000 soldiers. Then he went to a cohort, which was 600 soldiers. And then he went to centurion level, which was 100. And so, this gentleman is in charge of 100 soldiers there stationed in Capernaum. And he has a slave who was highly regarded, the one who was sick and to the point of death. Matthew's account of this tells us that this, this slave is convulsing, is very, very sick, and Luke tells us, good old Dr. Luke tells us, yeah, he's about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal the slave. When they came to Jesus, they urged him earnestly. He is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation. In fact, this centurion even built our synagogue. And if I were to take you to Capernaum today, we could see the remains of that first century synagogue that this centurion built. And so Jesus went with the Jewish leaders, and he was not far from the house, and the centurion sent friends to say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Uh, the centurion had just sent the Jewish leaders to go get Jesus, but further reflection, he's going, wait a minute. You can't do that. I'm not worthy. This is what I did not presume to come to you, he says. Instead, say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. This is the first time Jesus is amazed at anyone in Luke's narrative. We've seen the word used in reference to what Jesus is doing on the part of the crowd being amazed, but not Jesus. He turned and said to the crowd that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave well, let's pray. Father, we come to your text this morning. We thank you for these ancient words that have life, that are sharper than any two edged sword, that pierce the very heart. Why? Because they are ultimately from you. And so, Father, we ask as we go to the text today that our lives would not be the same because we've encountered it this morning. Guide us in our time together here around the word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a set of notes, you'll see the first point there in your notes is the healing of the soldier's slave. And again, we've we've talked about a centurion, but you've got to ask, why is a centurion in a Jewish village in northern Galilee in the first century? Well, that's very easy. We talked about Capernaum was a strategic town, both politically and geographically. It's set on border territories. It's set on a major highway, the VMRS, that went through this region, and so you would have tax collectors. But you're also going to need a police force. And that's what this Capernaum is doing, uh, or this Sairion is doing. He is serving as the police force here. I doubt that he is a Jewish proselyte, but you could argue he's certainly a God-fearer. He's given money to build the local synagogue, which is significant, and we'll talk about this. As we read this text, reflect on Cornelius. If you remember that story in Acts chapter 10 and 11, he's the first Gentile to become a believer. Remember that account with Peter? And Cornelius there are a lot of similarities between this centurion and Cornelius and that's intentional because Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles to show how we non-Jews can be brought into the equation and so a good study something you might want to do this week is to compare these two gentlemen there's a lot of similarities but we see here that we have a slave who is very very ill and again according to Dr. Luke He's about to croak. I mean, he's close to death, right? There's no question here. And so desperate is the centurion that he is, he's asked these Jewish leaders to do this. And the text tells us in verses four and five, they came and they asked him earnestly. The term speaks of great urgency. It, it's a life and death matter. This isn't just, you know, if you're passing through, we'd like to offer some bonbons. No, this is very serious. Uh, we have a grave matter to deal with Jesus, and, and we would like you to come. Now, notice what the Jewish leaders state about our centurion. Did you catch this? Number one, <clears throat> they tell us that he loves the Jewish people. We know he's a Gentile Jesus, but he, he loves us. He's great. Uh, in fact, they're going to highlight what we're going to see here in a minute. It reminds me, though, of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Right? Be careful not just to love those who love you. (laughs) But the idea is already seen here. You know, Jesus, you really need to step in. He's so good to us. He loves us. In fact, the text tells us he built our synagogue. I mean, look at this guy. He's awesome. Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, talks about Augustus loved the synagogues. Augustus was the emperor of Rome. He wasn't a Jewish leader why did he like the synagogues? Because they maintained stability in the land, is why he promoted synagogues. And so you kind of wonder, according this centurion partly building the synagogue was to win favor from his population, but also to bring stability to Capernaum and to make sure all is going well. I wrote, We need to be careful that our prayer life does not appeal to human accomplishments when asking for God's assistance. But rather, when we appeal to the Lord in our prayers, we need to to come to God's, seek God's mercy, don't we? It's so easy to say, well, Lord, you know, they've been such a faithful follower you. Can you just step in and heal them? Careful. It's appealing to God's mercy in any case and the world might applaud who we are and what we've accomplished, but it means nothing before a holy God, right? The centurion says, I am unworthy. So what, I've done all these things that they say I have done. I'm unworthy. Think about the centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. According to Acts, he's described as devout, God-fearing, charitable, and a prayer warrior yet, what does Peter say when he meets Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Repent. You need salvation. It doesn't matter what all these things you've done before a holy God, you stand guilty. And that's the case with Cornelius. In verses 6 through 8, we see Jesus went and he's, the, cent- the centurion addresses Jesus as Lord. Again, it's only used a brief, we've only seen it briefly. It's used by Peter in Luke 5 when he says, "Lord, depart from me, I'm unclean." Despite all that was said, again, about this centurion by the Jewish elders, the centurion dismisses all of these accolades, doesn't he? Contrary to how the world justifies their actions, the centurion makes no excuses. Nor does he appeal to his philanthropic work that he has done. Or highlight his social status. I mean, after all, he is a centurion serving in Palestine, which is not something most Roman soldiers desired. But rather, what does he reveal about himself? What does he appeal to? Notice, number one, we see here in his response, the centurion declares himself unworthy. AND I DON'T THINK HE'S REFERRING TO, YOU CAN'T COME TO MY HOME BECAUSE I'M A GENTILE, YOU'RE A JEW, AND MY HOUSE IS UNCLEAN. THIS IS FAR GREATER THAN THAT. HE UNDERSTANDS HE'S IN in THE MIDST OF JESUS, THE ALMIGHTY GOD. IN FACT, THE GREEK IS SO CLEAR HERE IN THE TEXT WHEN IT SAYS, LORD, DO NOT TROUBLE YOURSELF, FOR I AM NOT WORTHY. THE NOT IS HIGHLIGHTED. IT'S CLEAR. I AM TRULY NOT WORTHY TO BE IN YOUR MIDST, LORD. And so, despite his worthiness ascribed to him by the Jewish leaders, the centurion says, I am unworthy. Secondly, we note he does not flaunt his social status, his wealth, his power. Instead, he honors Jesus, which is amazing, culturally, ethically, in that century to be doing this. What he does highlight in the text, what does he highlight is, His military prowess, his ability to order people around. Notice what he says here, though. For I, too, am a man set under authority, which indicates that he knows Jesus has authority to command the spiritual realm. Right? You're in charge? I'm in charge over here. This is how I operate. And so he does highlight this. And he assumes that Jesus has authority over spiritual forces. And then the centurion understands that Jesus could simply speak and the servant would be healed. This is the first miracle that we find in Luke's gospel where it's appealed to Jesus just speaking the word. Remember the paralytic? What'd they have to do? They, they lowered him through the roof to get him to Jesus. Why didn't they just yell, hey, just speak the word? Well, no, you heal him. But no. this centurion, this Gentile soldier, I think understood Psalm 107. Psalm 107 says, we were sick, we were ill, we were in great need. Healing is brought simply, how does the text tell us? Through God speaking His healing word. And this Gentile soldier understood that Jesus did not need to be there to perform a healing. The centurion understood the power of God's Word. The only other text where it's recorded that Jesus is amazed again is in Mark 6, in all of the Gospels, and it's one is found here in verse 9, upon hearing the centurion, Jesus is gobsmacked, as they say in Scotland, and he turns to the crowd, did you see that? This is a, a teaching moment. <laughs> it, it's like saying, okay, pay attention here. You don't want to miss this. I got something for you to hear. He turns to the crowd and he says, now listen, even a pagan can turn to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, not even in Israel I have found such faith. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon in Luke 4? where he was at the synagogue at Nazareth, and he talked about how Elijah and Elisha went to non-Jews to perform their miracles. And, and, And Luke's highlighting this to show this gospel is for all people. It's not just for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile. And this gentleman, this Gentile, also can respond in faith. It's the third reference to faith in the gospel. Mary, we see reference to faith there. And <clears throat> we also see it with the four men who lowered the paralytic through the roof. Well, what is faith? What's, what's Jesus talking about here? It's, it's more than just knowledge. Because the demons know Jesus is God and they tremble. It's not simply knowing and approving either. It's ultimately saving faith is a trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. It is a personal trust in Jesus to save. One scholar who's written several commentaries on the Gospels, and particularly Luke, he writes, faith in the Gospel of Luke is attributed to those who act decisively on the thesis of the conviction that God helps is to be found God's help is to be found with Jesus and gratefully to receive God's actions through him it's found in Christ the person of Christ an understanding and here is the centurion who understands fully I am unworthy <laughs> I can't do this on my own I need you jesus and he responds by affirming the centurion's faith you see what jesus is also doing i think he's also giving out an indictment to all those around him look who's look who's with him look at verse one said after he had finished this the, the people they entered Capernaum. they're all going with him this crowd they're witnessing this And the faith of the religious rulers, the faith of the crowd, the faith of those who've already witnessed several miracles, even the faith of the disciples, they don't compare to this centurion. I think one of the secrets is a centurion understands, I am unworthy. (laughs) Jesus, just say the word. The the idea of you coming into my home, that's not going to work because I'm not worthy to be there. Now what does the text tell us in verse 10? We see here the miracle occur, right? So when those who had sent returned to the house, they found the slave well. It affirms the authenticity of the centurion's statement of faith. It, it, It also demonstrates the power of Jesus to fulfill what he has stated. It's a powerful scene. As Luke's moving through, what does it mean to respond in faith? How does the gospel go forth? He lays out this scene, and then he lays out another. We one, we have a healing. A guy's about to die. Now we're going to have a resurrection. Look at verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went with him so you have this entourage they're following that's quite something because this is 20 miles away Capernaum's on the north side of the sea of galilee we now go to the west side of the sea of galilee we're going to go down the valley past nazareth around mount tabor to mount moray is where we're located and that's significant we'll get to that in a minute but the text tells us as he approached the town gate a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of the mother, who, parenthetical statement, but very important for our storyline, was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, or the stretcher, and those who carried it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. So the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all. You better believe it, all right? And they began to glorify God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us. And the Jewish writings in the Inner Testament period, Sirach 48, states that Isaiah was the great prophet. So here's one like Isaiah. And God has come to help his people. This report about Jesus circulated through Judea, and all the surrounding country. <laughs> One scholar says, The Way of Life Meets the Way of Death uh, is titled for this section. Here's Jesus. He's, he's restored, uh, healed the centurion slave, and now we come to this scene, which is so powerful. And you're, you're not sure who to feel sorry for or shed the most tears. Is it for the dead man or is it for the woman, the mother? I say, why do I say that? Well, the text even highlights she is a widow. And this is very profound, because sadly her mourning is just the beginning of her suffering. She's not only lost her sole provider that's going to care for her, there is no AARP in the first century. And... It's really sad i i got my aarp card a few months ago why why did they do that at 50 that just makes you feel all the worse right widows were victims of exploitation and poverty in the first century that was clearly known i mean throughout scripture look at the old and new testament time and time again god says he's he's the caregiver of the widow and so here you have this horrific scene this lady who's lost her only son she has no husband there's no one to care for her I mean, it's a hopeless and very sad state. Sadly, life expectancy was 24 years of age in the first century. So she's probably very accustomed to death. She's already lost her husband, as we've stated, and now her son. But that doesn't nullify the great pain and anguish that she's facing. Now, you need to know something about Jewish funerals. First of all, they didn't proceed until they were certain the person had died so there's no question this kid didn't go into a coma and all of a sudden jesus just tapped him on the right spot on his head i don't know and away he wakes in fact he doesn't touch the sun or according to the text furthermore the entire community when someone has lost a loved one they are to come around them and they are also meant to weep notice the crowd tell the text tells us what says here, the, who had died, this mother, and a large crowd from the town was with her. They're also wailing. They're also crying. In fact, you could hire people to weep in the first century for you. It sounds crazy, but it's very significant. When Stephen is stoned in an Acts and they gather the body, it tells us they all wept loudly. And you go, well, why do you need to tell us that? Because it indicates his innocence. It also indicates your identification with the the one who just died, so you've got this weeping going on, and we're told that the body's laid out on a stretcher, and you go, "Where's the coffin?" But in first century burials, the body is placed in a tomb on a shelf or in a niche, and it's to decay for a year. Now, you you kids are going to love this. A year later, the family comes back and gathers the bones and puts them in a box. It sounds rather morbid, but it provided a one-year mourning process. In fact, for 30 days, the family is to weep. After the 30 days, they can stop weeping. But a year later, they'll go to the tomb, gather the bones, and put it in a box. Isn't that great? Lovely thought. And so here you have this first stage of this funeral process, and Jesus meets them here in the text. And Luke, by the way, now uses the term Lord. It's the first time the narrator will use it, using it in reference to Jesus. And it says that in in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Reminds me of Zechariah in the Benedictus in chapter 1 of Luke. He said that God has compassion on his people, that he has brought salvation to us. And that, of course... Is Jesus and so he approaches this one and you you can only imagine the mother can't you (laughs) I mean I've, I've preached enough funerals and weddings it's clear you can mess up at a wedding and everyone will forgive you they all laugh you mess up at a funeral you're toast you don't mess up at a funeral all right. and, and Jesus does three things. You're going, no, 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 you don't do that. First of all, he instructs them not to weep. Right? Well, look what he says. Do not weep. Uh, really? Family and friends were expected to weep. We just talked about that. That seems rather insensitive, Jesus. Secondly, he touches the stretcher. It's unclean. You're a rabbi. Don't touch it. There's a dead man on it. Right? In our... Culture today, is, I couldn't think of a, a great analogy other than maybe it would it's, it's, be like sitting on top of the coffin at a viewing. You don't do it, right? You don't touch the stretcher, Jesus. You don't tell them not to weep. And third, he commands the dead man, right? Get up. Now, you know, I, I know people talk to the beloved who's deceased. I've seen it. Uh, you know, oh, Johnny, I I loved you so much, I'm going to miss you, you know, but I've not seen anyone say, get out of that coffin, right? A little scary. And and the idea is here. In fact, it says he gets up and and he speaks. Now, watch the crowd's response here, because this is key in verses 16 and 17. It says, fear seized them all. That Reaction is seen time and time again in Luke's narrative. If you've seen Jesus last night and you said, Oh, I had a praise service, I'd be like, No, I don't think you saw Jesus. If you see Jesus, you're gonna you're gonna fall like Peter and say, Woe is me. Fear seizes the crowd time and time again when they see Jesus for who he is. Secondly, the text tells us they begin to glorify God. Jesus never performed a miracle that was self-serving. All of it was meant to glorify the Father. And you see this here. Uh, Jesus even stated, I've come here to glorify the Father. But as the third response. They say a great prophet has appeared among us. I mentioned the reference to Isaiah. But there's something else that's even stronger ties here. We're at the foothills of Mount Moray. Now, we're on the north side. This is where Nain is located. But if I were to walk you around the mount to the other side, there's a town called Shudom. And Elisha raised a young lad at Shudom. And there are a lot of parallels. There's also a lot of parallels with Elijah in 1 Kings 17, who did the same thing in raising the widow's son, In fact, if we had time, and I wish we did, we could look at the parallels. But in the Greek translation of 1 Kings, it's identical to what Jesus says to this young lad when he says, rise up. It's identical. And then when he gives it back to to the mother, same thing Elijah does. And that lad in 1 Kings 17, when he's healed, he speaks just like this one. These are not coincidences. We, remember in, in, in Luke chapter four, Jesus already talked about Elijah and Elisha. What's going on here? We have someone great, like the prophets of old, but even greater. And that's the connection here. This is the one we have looked for. And Jesus transcends the prophetic type. He is the Lord and he alone can forgive sins and de- declare sinners being saved. It's so profound what's going on. In fact, another parallel, look at First Kings 17, compare it this week with this event. It's the similarities, the connection points are numerous. Well, you have this healing, you have this resurrection, and, and there's vast differences between the two scenes, right? You've got a, well, you have a man, and you've got a woman, the main characters. You've got a Gentile. You've got a Jew. You have someone very powerful, a centurion. You have a, a woman who's very weak and frail on the margins of society. Someone in a position of authority. Someone subject to others. Socially loved. Outcast. Prestigious. Insignificant. The similarities, though, are huge. Don't miss them. Both are hopeless. Both are hopeless. They are faced with a situation that displays their lack of control, and there is no silver lining here in this midst. They are both helpless. The centurion, it doesn't matter how many troops are under his authority, he can do nothing to bring healing to his servant. The the, the widow, so what? The crowd's there. They can mourn with her, but they can't do anything about her son. And and it's nice they're there for the first 30 days or whatever, but when it comes to the next year, the anniversary, and the year after that, they're gone. Where are they? Both individuals, however, witnessed the powerful work of the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning saying, yeah, I can relate. I'm feeling pretty helpless. Or, like the video we just saw it earlier, I feel like the old boards that are at the bottom of the barn, useless. The Lord comes and says, Here I am. I bring healing, I bring restoration. And that leaves us with three points that are in your notes with principles I think that we can glean from Jesus' miracles. The first of these, faith begins with a recognition that we have nothing to offer to the Lord. We are completely dependent on him. It doesn't matter what the centurion can bring to the table. At the end of the day, it's useless before an almighty God. I love the analogy of my youth pastor. used to say this years ago. You can make a great pizza, no anchovies. I mean, it's dynamite but if you put dog food on one little corner of the pizza, I'm not going to eat it. And that's, it's graphic, but you get the idea, right? It doesn't matter what the centurion can bring. Before a holy God, he falls short. Faith is not merely intellectual assent to divine truth. To have faith means to trust in, to rely on, in relation to justification, meaning to be declared righteous. It's a trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the Puritan writer Hooker. He writes, God doth justify the believing man, woman, yet not for the worthiness of his belief, but for the worthiness of the one who is believed. Isn't that great? Kenneth Allen writes, If God's work is to be quickened, there must be a preaching of man's moral bankruptcy and lost Condition, There is a hell. <laughs> as much as we don't talk about it today, there is a hell. And God's wrath will be uh, unleashed upon those who do not respond. But it's the cross where Jesus paid the price for our sin so that we could be full and free, justified by placing our faith in Christ alone. Just as the Lord worked in the life of this slave and this young man to bring glory to God, so he, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, he's worked in our lives. Weren't we dead to sin, according to Ephesians 2? (laughs) We were laying on the stretcher. In fact, we were kicking and screaming, but it was against God. We were enemies of God Almighty. But we were dead in sin. It wasn't until we repented of our sin, recognized God's Christ's work on the cross, and turned to him that we understood healing, forgiveness, and salvation. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and this is so foreign to me. I, I, I've never placed my faith in Jesus. Oh, I know who he is. Of course, he's a historical figure. There's too much data to support otherwise. But unlike the centurion, You've rattled off good things that you have done in hopes that you'll make it to heaven. Our salvation is solely based upon our faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. As Peter told the centurion in Acts 10, repent and believe in this one who has died for your sin and has rose from the dead. Faith also, on the second, or second point of your notes, faith believes the impossible, because nothing is impossible for the Lord, except that he might sin. If we're walking in fellowship with the Lord, then we will see this world from his perspective. Oh, to have faith like that centurion, who says, you know, just, just speak the word, Lord, and, and I know he'll be healed. He, he's not had a lesson in theology. In fact, if he had, by the Jewish leaders of the day, this isn't how it's been happening with Jesus. You, you bring him to Jesus. We, we need to be living our lives in, in recognition that Jesus accomplishes the impossible. But it's so easy to fret, doesn't it? To plan and to stew rather than to pray, to rest and trust. I mean, think about what Scripture has stated we can feel abandoned and all alone. And yet, what does Hebrews thirteen state? It tells us that He will nev- never leave us nor forsake us. We can easily be overcome by trials and sufferings, and yet first Peter five, the suffering is just for a little while. Christ will restore, support, strengthen, and establish. We can become overwhelmed with temptation and sin. And yet, what does First Corinthians ten state? It reminds us that he will, allow, he will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able to face. We can become hopeless under the weight of life, can't we? And yet, Psalm 42 reminds us that our hope is in the Lord. We can become fearful in the present age in which we live. There's much to be fearful for or over concerning. And yet, Psalm 48 reminds us our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We fear death and the prospect of the grave. And yet, 1 Corinthians 15 states, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Our faith needs to be like the centurion and one that echoes what Jesus declared. For men and women, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. There's a song that the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir would sing And I played it many, many times, especially during my (laughs) doctoral studies, thinking, okay, Lord. And the the words go like this. It's no secret what my God can do, what my God has done for others. He can still do for you. The Jesus who walked by the Sea of Galilee is the same God who sits on the throne. I mean, he sits at the throne of the Father, interceding for us. He's not changed. There's nothing impossible, impossible with God. There's no doubting, there's no fear. Just put your trust in Jesus and the answer is there. The lyrics go on to state, there's nothing impossible, impossible with God. When he speaks, you know it's true or done. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's nothing impossible, impossible with God. Jesus is listening and he hears you every prayer. Shake off discouragement and give the Lord your care. There's nothing impossible, impossible with God. When he speaks, you know it's done. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's nothing impossible with God. Isn't that great? Our prayer life, our relationships, our conversations, they need to reflect a faith that understands there is nothing impossible with our God. And that leads us to point C. All things, including our broken lives, do not exist in isolation. It's no, it wasn't by chance that the servant was sick. It wasn't by chance that this widow had just lost her son and that Jesus just happened to walk into the village. As I stated there in your notes, we exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. Experiencing a loved one suffering or the death of a family member or a friend. It is awful. No one said it doesn't. It hurts. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. And yet, even in these tragedies, there's a glorious opportunity for the Lord to be glorified. Nothing accentuates this truth more so than the cross. There is a quote at the bottom by Piper in his Spectacular Sins. It is a great little book. It's worthy of reading. I wrote, Jesus knew there would be sin, rebellion, pain, suffering, and evil in this world. But Piper writes, and with infinite wisdom, he and his father took it all into account as they planned the history of salvation and the triumphs of grace at Calvary. Our God is in the business of doing the impossible. If you question that, then those of you who know Jesus, look what he's done for you. <laughs> like the centurion's son, or the centurion slave, like the widow's son, he has transformed our lives. And this morning, at the first of every month, we observe communion. And I couldn't think of a... F- more fitting text to fit with communion this morning, we need to take some time just reflecting on what God has done, what He is doing, and what He will do for us. Let's spend some time doing that, and then we'll go to prayer. Father, we look at the cross, and we see the impossible being realized. It was at the cross that your Son came and took on our sin. The physical anguish was horrific. Crucifixion, some have stated, is the most inhumane means of death. It was to present the most pain for the longest period of time. But oh, it fails in comparison to the price of the sin. He took our sin on that cross. Father, we thank you for that price that was paid. And we thank you that another impossible event, that is that he didn't remain in the grave. Three days later, he arose. He is victorious over death. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. We, too, were dead like the widow's son and sick like the servant of the centurion. And yet you reached down and touched us. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The bread is on the bottom. Paul highlights the upper room and and utilizes this for instruction concerning the Last Supper. One of the ordinances of the church is communion. And he writes, For I received from the Lord when I also handed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took that bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, The impossible is about to occur. (laughs) And he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way, he also took the cup after supper. Looking down at that juice, it symbolized his blood. He said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we we thank you. Thank you for our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray.